You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin, or if you're joining us online on our website, please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 6. We near the end of our study this morning. We have little time left in this book. And this morning, God willing, we will finish the 10-verse section on calling the Christians to war and to put on the armor of God. I'm going to focus on verses 18 through 20, but I'd like to begin our time by reading all 10 verses, um, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. And also from me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Lord God, um, I pray that you would give us the grace to understand the exhortation Paul is giving, and to receive it and to apply it, that we would put on your whole armor, that we would pray in this manner, that we would commit ourselves to preparing for war, and that we might stand and remain standing against the onslaught of the devil and his forces. We give this time up to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Titled this morning's message, Praying for War, and it may seem like a strange title, but if you consider the series that it's in, in this chunk, first message titled, A Call to War, then Dressing for War, then Preparing for War, and now Praying for War, and the idea is this, not praying because we want war, we've already been told the war is coming to us, it's inescapable. Rather, we pray in preparation, in regards to praying for war, we're, we're going to be attacked, We're going to be um, surprised, provoked, tested, tempted. But we need to be praying now in preparation for it. Um, The Apostle Paul leaves aside the, the armor metaphor and just speaks of prayer directly here. And yet it's critically tied to what's come before. The ESV doesn't include it, but the Greek brings the idea of through prayer. Uh, It's connecting back to what came before. Here's another critical element in our spiritual warfare. 
And what, one of the things that emphasize the, re, the relationship of prayer to all of this is just how much space Paul gives to it. I commented last week that the shield, out of all six of the elements, received the greatest attention. The shield of faith, and we were told what it would do. And so by, by giving it the extra attention, he's emphasizing, well, prayer gets this largest section of words. Not only that, it's length, but notice the, the emphatic use of all. I arranged our notes to highlight this, but even in the ESV, praying at all times, with, in the spirit, with all prayer, to keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That emphasizes the text as well. There's also, you can't see this in the English, alliteration going on in the Greek. Uh, Paul is, is underlining this and highlighting this, and it's flashing for its importance to us. And I will readily confess at the beginning of this morning's message that consistent, habitual, round-the-clock prayer is easily my weakest spiritual discipline. So I'll be preaching the text, not my life. This, this week studying this has been a a good challenge to me to be praying more often with more regularity. This is not something I claim to have achieved. And yet Paul links it critically, the role of prayer in the believer's life, with standing firm in battle. Okay? So with that, we're going to look at this in two parts. Verse 18, we have Paul's exhortation of prayer. And then in verses 19 and 20, Paul's request for prayer. Okay? So he first exhorts the Ephesians and us in prayer and then requests prayer from the Ephesians. Okay? So let's read verse 18 in our translation here. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, I've ordered this. The ESV takes the clauses and puts them in a slightly different order for smoother English. I've ordered them in the order the clauses appear in the Greek text. And he begins by connecting this through... All prayer and supplication. And the word through makes it clear this isn't a new thought. In fact, it connects back either to verse 17. Some commentators have suggested that. Take the helmet of the spirit and the sword of the spirit. And the thought being through prayer. We, we take the sword through prayer. We take the helmet through prayer. I, I don't buy that. That doesn't compel me. I, I actually think it connects back to verse 14. Stand, therefore. It's what all the other instructions connect to. You stand by taking the belt of truth and by having put on the breastplate of righteousness and by having shod your feet with the readiness of the gospel. And it would seem strange that prayer would only be connected to the word and to the helmet of salvation. Rather, I think, in prayer, through prayer, in constant prayer, we put on the whole armor. It's a prayerful activity. So I think it connects back to the verb in verse 14, the command to stand firm, stand therefore, which means then that this type of prayer is precisely how you stand firm. It's connected to what came before. You stand, and then he tells you by putting on the belt, by putting on the breastplate, by putting on lifting up the shield, putting your shoes on, and by praying. It's an integral part. It's a critical part. And the emphasis here, again, is on the whole armor of God, the complete package. Any notions of, well, how would I fare if I only had three of the six pieces is missing the point. The whole thing is holistic in nature. The totality is emphasized. And in that vantage point, prayer is a necessary, critical element in your spiritual battle. And, and it, 
Before we go further, just consider how much of my failures are resulted directly from, are the result directly from a failure to pray in preparation, a failure to pray in this way. So I'm going to organize his instructions on prayer around the four alls. We are to pray with all prayer and supplication, with all prayer and supplication or request. And as I've noted already, this is precisely then how you stand firm. Now, I don't think Paul is trying to give us categories of prayer. He uses a number of words in this text for prayer. And I think his emphasis rather is holistic and he speaks of all types of prayers. Paul's going to talk about it at all times and all places, whether it's the short bullet prayers, whether it's long prayers, whether it's prayers of petition and request, whether it's prayers of thanksgiving, whether it's prayers interceding for others. I think he means all of it. We should be praying, utilizing all sorts of prayers. There isn't one magic way to pray. Um, Sometimes I like to pray kneeling with my eyes closed. If I'm I'm praying while I'm driving, I ought to keep them open. Sometimes you can shoot off little short prayers. I remember when I was riding my bike and got in some deep water. I just, help, you know, just cried out, just sort of came up. And other times we give longer prayers. Sometimes we pray through scripture. Sometimes we just pray what's on our hearts. Sometimes we're concerned of what we need. And sometimes what others need. And so I think Paul here, when he says, with all prayer and supplication, all all manner of them, nothing's excluded. We're to be standing firm through all types of prayer. And he says, in the spirit. Now, he could either mean by in, Sphere, we're praying in the sphere of the spirit, or agency, by. You could translate the preposition by as well. And I'm going to suggest there's probably ideas of both here, meaning by his aid and according to his will. Praying in the spirit doesn't mean you're in a trance. It it doesn't mean you're suddenly carried away in a mystical experience. It, It might, but I think primarily that is by his aid. We learn from other places in scripture John 15 and and Romans 8 in particular, the Spirit helps us on our end praying. If you want to think of prayer, it's a Trinitarian activity. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us. We don't know how to pray as we ought. He moves us. He intercedes for us. Our prayers reach the Father through the mediation of Jesus Christ. This is the picture. Our prayers go up to the throne room of God where Jesus Christ is present, our mediator, our advocate, And they go to the throne of God the Father. That's the Trinitarian picture of prayer. It's amazing that every member of the Trinity is involved in our prayer life. The Spirit on our end, the mediation of Jesus to the very throne of God the Father. I think that's what he means by in the Spirit. By his aid and according to his will. So, What should characterize our prayer life? First, all types and manner of prayers. Done through the help of the Spirit and according to His will, as revealed in Scripture. Secondly, what should characterize our prayer life? At all times. At all times. In all seasons, literally, is is what he says. And this means to be praying continually continually, continual prayer. And this is precisely where I think I I struggle the most. You can set aside times in the morning or at night, but really, biblically, prayer should just be something we're in and out of constantly all day. 
The word seasons links up with what he said back in chapter 5. If you turn back there, I I think the the thought is that because in chapter 5 we're told the days are evil, the seasons are evil, and evil times. Verse 16, um, making the best use of the time because the days or the times or the seasons are evil. Well, he says be praying in all seasons or at all times. That's the linking thought. Because the enemy is around us, potentially ready to strike at all times. Because we never know when the attack's coming. We should be in prayer at all times. That's, that's the idea. Continual prayer. Um, in fact, I, I would suggest to you that prayerlessness or a lack of prayer is, is probably the single greatest evidence of pride and self-sufficiency. I mean, let's use the military metaphor. Imagine you're a soldier guarding an outpost, and you know a massive force, a massive army is going to be attacking, sending out sorties constantly, and you have unrestricted access to the general in charge who can send you reinforcements, who can give you supplies, who can give you fighting strategies, and that you're welcomed, you're invited to be calling constantly. Normally in the military, you wouldn't have direct access to the top general. But here the top general is saying, call me anytime you want. I want you reporting to me. I want to give you help. I want to give you strategy. I want to hear updates on how things are going. And imagine that soldier just never uses the comms. What would that say about them? Well, either they're very, very stupid, or they think they're Rambo. Or something like that. There is no spiritual virtue in that type of rugged, independent, stiff upper lip individualism. We have access to the very throne of God. And, and the sad truth is like the Israelites who didn't want to draw near the mountain. You remember that? when um, This is where I think Jake's ABF is leading up to. When, when the Israelites draw near the mountain in Exodus 19, God has to tell Moses about three times, he set up a barricade, do not let the people come up on the mountain. God's acting as though he's assuming the people would want to draw near. We can get close to God. What happens? The people don't want to get anywhere near the mountain. Moses, you talk to God for us, lest we die. And in many religions today, a mediated relationship to God is offered. You can talk to Mary, who can talk to God. Or you can talk to a saint, who can talk to Mary, who can talk to Jesus, who can talk to God. We have direct access to the throne of God anytime we want. We're invited in. Paul's already made that clear back in Ephesians. Turn back to Ephesians 2. Where the, the emphasis on what we were before and what we are now is highlighted. I mean, just, just understand that the remarkable access we have. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. This is the second contrast in chapter 2. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, Without God in the world, you and I were formerly cut off, far removed, hopeless, without God. But now, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near. 
by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. If you're in Christ, you've been reconciled to God. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being himself the cornerstones. We've been told that in Christ, by his death, not because of anything you've done, not because you and I inherently deserve it, because Christ on the cross bore the penalty of our sin, because he shed his blood and died for us in him, And in one spirit, we can draw near. And the sign that either we are unaware of the battle, or we think we're stronger than we are, or we underestimate the enemy, or all of those three reasons, we don't make regular use of prayer. And we're to be praying at all times. Around the clock. Praying while you're driving. Praying while you're going to sleep. Praying while you're going about the day. That ought to characterize us. This is linked with our standing. Make no mistake, if if we're weak at this, it will affect our ability to stand in this war that we will fight, that we cannot escape. Which brings us then to the third all. Keep alert, he says, with all perseverance. Because we're to be praying with all types of prayers and at all times, Paul says, in reference to this, To that end, the ESV translates, we need to keep alert, which means we need to be alert to make sure we're praying with all types of prayers at all times, which suggests then the command there, be alert. You will not naturally pray this way. So on the one hand, if this isn't just what you sort of the groove you fell into, be encouraged. Paul assumes this won't happen naturally. Very few people I know, if any, just sort of, you know, I just started reading my Bible before you know what I was praying all the time. We need to keep alert, but there's the command to be alert to this, to be watchful for this, which means then this requires diligence and effort on our part. This requires diligence. You've you got to make a decision. If, if you, like me, reading this text, conclude, I'm not even close to this, then you've got to decide to make changes. And, and good grief with today's modern technologies and smartphones. You could set alarms 15 times a day to remind you to pray. Or you could make a point when you do certain activities to pray. Or at certain points throughout the day to pray. We're to be watchful. And make, make no mistake, if you hear this and you think I'm fine, you are disregarding, disobeying God's command here to keep alert in regards to praying all types of prayers at all times. So I'd invite you to to join me in endeavoring to do this, praying more frequently, more often, with all types of prayers, to be alert. This is precisely the warning Jesus gave the apostles in Luke. You remember? 
Twice, Luke 21, 33 to 36, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves. Let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you like a trap, for it'll come upon all who dwell upon the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Stay awake, he says, praying that you may have strength, preparing for the battle, that you may stand before the Son of Man. Paul possibly is even using those words familiar with the saying of Jesus. Or you remember when Jesus went off to pray in the garden. When he came to the place, Luke 22, verse 40, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. But a few verses later, when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Jesus and the disciples went to the garden to pray. Jesus prayed. The disciples fell asleep. A few hours later, who triumphed in trial and temptation and who failed miserably? You know the answer. Jesus triumphed. And Luke wanted us to see that the reason Jesus triumphed was his commitment to prayer. We can be tempted to think, no, no, he was God. And so it was easy for him. No, Luke wants us to see, especially in his humanity, Jesus uses means to succeed. He prays. He sets aside the time. Final hours of his life. Final hours of freedom. And what does he do? Devote it to prayer. And he exhorts his disciples to pray specifically for the upcoming temptation and trial. And they fall asleep and Peter denies him. One disciple runs away naked. They, they, They fail. They scatter. And he's nailed to a tree and he never wavers in unbelief. He never wavers in his commitment to his father. And we're to understand it's precisely because he prepared for the trial before it came. And yet, if I'm honest, frequently I am more self-conscious and more self-sufficient than our Lord. Because I'm not carving out times like this. And I need to be. We need to be. It requires effort and work. And this is not a unique command given Here, Paul says in Romans 12, be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So the New Testament assumes this will be hard work. This isn't something you should assume is just going to naturally happen. And yet it's hard work we're called to do. Be watchful. Be aware. Make some commitment. Make Have a discussion today over lunch. What are we going to do? How are we going to set aside times? How are we going to up our prayer times? Not necessarily need to be having longer individual prayers. Just praying with greater regularity, with greater um, freedom, continually. Be diligent. Be alert. This requires diligence and effort on our part. And then Paul moves to who we should be praying for and what we should be praying for. And again, all comes in now for all the saints. Pray for all the saints. We're praying with all types of prayers. We should be praying in all seasons and at all times. We should be praying alertly with all perseverance. Now we're praying for all Christians everywhere. So first, I do believe Paul is assuming we're praying for ourselves here, first and foremost. We are praying for ourselves. We read in Luke where Jesus 
told his disciples to pray for themselves. We're praying in regard to this trial. But we're also to be praying for each other. And that's the emphasis here for all the saints, for all the Christians. It's good for us to be praying for one another. So pray for yourself and pray for others also. Paul has already modeled this. He's in jail. He's awaiting to see Caesar. And yet he's finding time to pray for the Ephesian church. Turn back to chapter 1. I'll highlight two of Paul's prayers in Ephesians. Paul has modeled this. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So Paul is thanking God for them, and he's requesting, God, through your spirit, show them more of who you are. Or in chapter 3, you remember how chapter 3, the transition from the doctrinal section of Ephesians to the application is bridged by this magnificent Trinitarian prayer, starting in verse 14 in chapter 3? For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul, Paul has been praying for them, and he wants them to know he's been praying for them. He's been thanking God for them. And I imagine all the other churches he was involved with as well. And here, we are told to pray for each other. Um, turning, turning your Bibles to Hebrews 3. Briefly, but I want to make a third point, and that's this. Perseverance of the saints, our continued perseverance, is a group project. It's a group project. A number of passages highlight this reality, but, and we'll see this even explicitly in just a moment from Paul himself, but in America and in the modern day, we, we can pride ourselves in individual, rugged self-determination. I don't need any help. I've got my hand to the tiller. And we need each other. This is one of the reasons why churchless Christianity is doomed to fail. We are not designed to walk alone. And you meet people, it's just, I got just me and Jesus and we're okay. Paul wasn't okay with just him and Jesus. You're going to see him and he needed people praying for him. And if you and I are going to stand firm, we need to be standing together. And in in Hebrews chapter 3, the possibility of, of a heart getting dulled, hardened by sin, drifting, is entertained. And the solution is corporate. I just want to note the individual communal language. Take care, brothers. Hebrews 3.12. So there's plural. Take care, y'all, lest there be in any one of you, individual, an unbelieving heart. So everyone is warned to take care lest a particular individual person begin to have an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But, and then it's plural, corporate, ESV doesn't bring it out, but exhort, but you all exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. So what's the remedy, the safeguard for an individual in the congregation hardening to sin, falling away? It's the entire congregation exhorting itself, speaking the truth and love to itself every day as long as it's called today, that not one of you 
may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I know that's not talking about prayer, but the point is this. We have a responsibility lest any one of us stumble and fall. And that's caught up here in Paul's exhortation that we pray for one another. Because our faithfulness, our standing is corporate and it's dependent on each other. My my walk with Christ is dependent on me, the Lord and his grace, and you all. And so is yours. So is yours. So we pray for one another. Pray for yourself, pray for others, but understand perseverance of the saints is a group project. And Paul is going to precisely demonstrate this reality as we turn to Paul's request for prayer. Paul's request for prayer. Make supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So I just want to look at this in three points. First, the request itself, the request for this prayer. Is it not striking to you, and here's your blank, that the apostle, apostle with a capital A, scripture writing, speaking for God, spiritual authority, and not just any apostle, but the apostle to whom God revealed the mystery of Christ, remember in chapter 3? He's an apostle to the Gentiles. He's had personal appearance of the risen Lord. He's had the mystery of the gospel revealed to him, still needs and seeks their prayers. Isn't that remarkable? Paul can write with strength. Paul can rebuke. Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 5, I've already judged them, delivered them over to Satan, even though I'm present with you. And here, pray for me also. Pray for me also. Paul, the apostle, to whom God revealed the mystery of Christ, needs and seeks their prayers. In fact, this is common for Paul. I got a list here of some various places. Paul requests prayer. Let me read some of them to you. Romans 15, 30 to 32. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Or first, Second Corinthians 1.11. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Colossians 4.3. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Or just, I love this simple one, 1 Thessalonians 5, 25. Brothers, pray for us. Or 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 2. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. Or, referencing the necessity and the importance of others' prayer from Listen to Philippians 1.19. Paul talks about how he's been imprisoned for the gospel. And he says, For I know that through your prayers 
and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul writes scripture. Paul's seen the risen Lord more than once. Paul speaks with authority. And yet Paul knows he needs and actively seeks the prayers of other believers. He knows he needs it and he seeks it, which means, I think this is fair enough, then therefore we need and we should seek the prayers of others. And this just gets back at our self-sufficiency. We don't like admitting we need help. We don't like admitting we don't have it together. I mean, Paul is going to be really honest here. Guys, pray for me that I don't wimp out. Pray for me that I know what to say. Paul is not afraid to ask for help. He's not too proud to ask for help. He's not too proud to explain where he might be weak, where he might be tempted, where he might stumble. We need to follow that pattern. We need to be praying for each other, and we need to be soliciting others praying for us. Let's look next to the content of the prayer. Paul is specific at what he wants prayer for. He wants words, and he wants boldness. He wants words, and he wants boldness. He wants um, that words may be given to me. That passive is a divine passive, that God would give him. So the prayer would be directed to God, not to Paul. God, in essence, please give Paul the words to speak and the boldness to speak would be the essence of the prayer Paul is asking for. That words would be given to Paul. Because we know from 1 Corinthians 2 that Paul's not eloquent. I don't think he's talking about eloquence here, but we know he's not eloquent. Listen to how Paul described his first church-planting evangelistic presentation in Corinth. 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians sorry, 2, 1-5. to And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I don't think Paul ultimately means here eloquence, even though we know he's not eloquent. I think it's basically, if you've ever felt that you're intimidated, you're scared, and you're afraid you're going to stumble over your words. How do you even get started? You've, you've experienced this, I'm sure. Just, uh, you're trying to think what to say. Paul's not saying he, he, he doesn't understand the mystery of Christ. I think he's picturing, but I might choke up. I might wimp out. I might speak too quickly. I might stumble over my words. I might not be understood. And so he's asking that words be given and boldness will be given. Because in that same passage you just read, we learn that Paul also is not fearless. Paul is not fearless. And again, if you've ever been embarrassed, intimidated, nervous, sharing your faith, sharing the gospel, sharing some truth from God, you're in good company. Paul, Paul was with him in much fear. Paul, in prison already for the gospel, is afraid he might be afraid in the future. Pray for me for the words to speak and the boldness to speak them. And in our context of battle and struggle, I don't think it's unreasonable to think Paul anticipated that perhaps one of the ways the enemy might attack him would be to intimidate him and get him fearful, get him to clam up. And he seeks their prayer that he might not do that, that God would give him words, God would give him grace to speak. It's also 
helpful to note how Paul is on mission. He's not praying that his burden will be lightened. He's not praying that he might get better meals, more people to visit him. In 2 Timothy, he'll ask for company. It's not that those things are wrong. But he's concerned about his mission. He's the gospel to the Gentiles. And when the time comes to speak, he may even have in view his hoped-for audience with Caesar. It may be that he has that in mind. Paul's appealed to Caesar. He's hoping to stand before him. And it may be, I want to make the most of that. I got the opportunity to evangelize Caesar himself. Pray for me that I don't trip up, wimp out, choke up. Or it might just be his evangelism to the prison garden. In Philippians, he makes it clear that the word of the gospel has gone out to all the praetorian guard. I don't know exactly what he has in mind. And, and you can, the, te- the danger for us is to look at people like Paul, to look at great people in the faith. I think, now I'm not like them. They can accomplish those things. Paul was able to accomplish things he accomplished precisely because he sought prayer like he does here. It's a cop-out to say, I'm not a Paul. Start praying like Paul. Start admitting your need and seeking prayer from others like Paul. And see what God can do with you. Jesus himself regularly went alone in times for prayer in preparation for the battle. We need and should seek the prayers of others. Because Paul knows he's not eloquent and Paul was not fearless. Now look at the glorious purpose of his prayer. That's the means. I want words and I want, I want boldness to speak. But that's all serving a greater end. That he might make known the mystery of the gospel. That he might make known the mystery of the gospel. That's his passion. I want others to know and understand this good news that God has revealed to me. And for Paul, as we've seen in Ephesians, this mystery is simply more than Jesus died, ask him into your heart. This is about a great rescue and redemptive operation that the Lord Jesus Christ did. He came and he died on the cross so that we who were far away could be brought near. We could be united with the Jew and Gentile in the church. That through the church, God might display his wisdom. It's all there in chapter 3. And he wants to announce and herald that glorious plan of salvation to Caesar, to the Roman guards, to the Gentiles, everywhere. In Romans, he's plotting about going to Spain. He wants to get the message out there. And so he knows that he might be the weak link. He might wimp out. He might choke up. He might stutter and stumble. And he wants the words. And he wants the boldness, but not for his own glory, but so that the gospel might go out unhindered. For he was an ambassador of the gospel. God's representative of the gospel. That's how he introduced himself in this letter. And Paul was imprisoned for the gospel. He's already told us that. He's in jail precisely because he's been on mission. Precisely because he's been boldly, courageously announcing the word is precisely why he's in jail. So he's been very faithful up to this point. But just because he's been faithful, just because he's been bold, just because he's been fearless, doesn't mean he might not stumble tomorrow. He's taking his own advice. He's not saying, I got this under control. He's saying, praise God, I think he'd say, praise God, I've 
been able to be faithful in this, but I need to request more grace that I would continue to be faithful. I mean, we can read about this in the next point. Ultimately, that he might speak freely and boldly. In, in Acts 9, 27 to 28, the same word gets used describing Paul and Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had speaks, preached boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. The idea is actually freely, unhindered, unrestricted. To speak freely, without constraint. Now to speak freely in front of Caesar, you need some boldness. But it's not fundamentally saying he's hammering the pulpit and he's you know, driving his point home. Rather, he's speaking without hindrance, without restriction, without restraint, freely as he ought to speak. And then finally, he makes the point um, that he might faithfully do what he ought. You know, he's already told us, and remember, turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. And in chapter 4, if you remember many moons ago, Paul said this, verse 1, I urge you, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a worthy, in a manner worthy of your calling, with which you've been called. And we gave some consideration. What does that mean? And he's not saying that there's a certain way you can live that's worthy, deserving of the gospel. Rather, there is a way of living that it comports with, is consistent with, and is fitting with the gospel. Live in a way befitting people who've been freed from sin, who've been seated and united with Christ. Walk in a fitting, worthy way. Well, here, I think the same notion's in play. There is a way that Paul ought to speak that is fitting for someone who has been made an apostle, an ambassador for Jesus Christ. There's a fitting way for him to speak, and he wants to speak in that fitting way. He ought to be faithful to do what he ought He's concerned that he'd be unfaithful, that he might stumble, that he might speak in an unfitting way. And so he's seeking their prayers. Now, before we sing our final song, and we will sing our final song, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Because at this point, you might think to yourself, well, that's good for those who are called to be ambassadors. It's good for those evangelists. I got news for you. We're all ambassadors which means we all need to prepare to speak. In fact, that even links back to the preparation for the shoes of the gospel of peace. But turn to 2 Corinthians 5. And I want to make the point that what Paul says here can't simply be true for him or even just him and his traveling band of missionaries. What he says here, if you follow the grammar, has to be true for all of us or none of it's true. Okay? Verse, um, let's start back at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. So, to paraphrase, Paul, Christ died for all, that all of those people might live differently. We're not talking about a subset. We're about to read is true for all for whom he died, for all who received the benefits of his death. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So the we in verse 16 is coming out of the consequence that Christ died for all, that all might live differently. Therefore, we live differently. That's the rationale. 
died for all, that those who, okay, verse 16, therefore from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, which is fundamentally talking about evangelism and how you view the unbelieving world. Being a new creation isn't fundamentally about, you know, anything other than evangelism and being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Paul's, Paul's basically, we used to think of Jesus one way. When we were dead in our sins, we thought of Jesus one way. Now we've been made alive in him. We look at him differently, and we look at our neighbor differently. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in the first instance, it's newness in our regard, estimation, and how we view the world around us. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now that us is better be all of us, not just Paul and his traveling band. He reconciled us to himself and gave us, oh, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Who who got entrusted with the message? All of us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. If you like the us if you want to be part of the us in verse 18, you got to be part of the us in verse 20. If you want to be reconciled through Christ, you want to be part of that us, then you need to understand you also are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Make, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Paul, no doubt, got singled out for a particular ministry. He's an apostle. You and I are not apostles. I don't care what the silly person on TV says. They're not an apostle either. But we are ambassadors. We have been entrusted in ministry of reconciliation. And if you find yourself wimping out, If you are aware of times you should have spoken and didn't, may I suggest to you, it might be because you're not praying in this way. And it might be because you're not asking and seeking others to pray for you. That you're not readying yourself with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The Apostle Paul is not too good or too strong that he doesn't need to seek prayer. He humbles himself. Guys, I might wimp out. Pray that I won't be afraid. Pray that I won't be timid. Pray that I'll open my mouth. Pray that I won't trip up over what I say. And we see how God used that faithfulness. He planted churches. He wrote half the books of the New Testament. He finished his course. He was faithful to the end. Now we need to be about the business of standing. A war is being brought to us. A battle is being brought to us. And we need to pray like we're aware of it. Like we believe it. And like we understand what's at stake. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing our closing song.